If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. As you're turning there this morning, I want you to think about a time in your life when you had great expectations for something. Think about an event uh, that uh, you look forward to. You, you daydreamed about it sitting in your office and had to... Uh, jolt back to reality every time your boss walked by because you were thinking about this event or this activity. Maybe you saved some money for it to be able to, to do this. You were planning for it. Uh, you told everybody that you could about this event. You thought it was going to be the greatest day, the greatest week, just the greatest experience or event of your life. Kind of thinking about something that you really, really look forward to, you had great expectations for. Well, did any of you in that uh, event that you're thinking about, did you ever have it come in well below the expectations you had for it in your mind? You know, maybe it was this, this big restaurant and this, that you were going to go and the food wasn't all that great. Maybe it wasn't the restaurant, it was the date, and maybe the date wasn't all that great. But you married him anyway, and uh, so now... I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Please, no, no, no nasty emails or anything, just a little joke there. Uh, maybe, maybe the vacation wasn't all that you had envisioned, you know, in your mind. I know Shelly and I, we went on vacation one time. We wound up leaving two days early. We were like, yeah, this just wasn't what we thought it was going to be. So we're like, we just seem to be at our house, you know, resting for these last couple of days. Uh, but I think all of us have probably experienced just, just looking forward to something and having the, uh, the expectations, having a fall short of our expectations. But there's a flip side to that coin as well. I hope, and most of you can probably think of an event that you really didn't look forward to. You know, maybe there was a, a sense of dread and you're thinking, man, I, I, I really don't want to do this. Maybe, maybe it was that date. And again, hey, maybe it turned out a lot better than you thought. Or, or maybe it's going to a family reunion that you get there and you go, oh, that, that wasn't half bad. You know, I hung out with my, my normal relatives over here and, and steered clear of the weirdos on the other side of the house. So, you know, maybe it didn't go as bad. Uh, maybe you've been to a, a banquet. I know I attended a lot of different banquets and things like that. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, does somebody you know, get up there and they're just going to talk and it's just going to be horrible, painful. And the banquet speaker wasn't as bad as I thought. Or maybe this morning, you know, there might be heel marks in the parking lot where somebody drug you in today. You know, it's Father's Day. I want you to come. You're like, oh, no. So maybe at this point in the service, you're going, well, it's not half bad. We'll see what this guy has to say. And so maybe you'll leave today going, that was better than I thought it was going to be. You know, I kind of geared myself up for this. Um, but we all have had those events take place, and we understand this concept in our minds. Well, what I want us to do this morning is in John chapter 5, uh, we're going to meet some people who had uh, some expectations of God, of what God should be like and uh, what he should do and what he shouldn't do. And honestly, their expectations are the opposite ends of the spectrum. Well, one had really low expectations, one had really high, but the amazing thing is is that when confronted with the power of God through Jesus, neither of those individuals or, or groups surrendered their lives to Christ. It's tragic. They had ungreat expectations, and when they encountered God in the flesh through Christ, they still refused to let go of their expectations and receive what God had in store for them, what God desired for them. So in John chapter 5... In verse 1, it says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up 
to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know which feast this is, but Jesus is apparently by himself. Generally, Jesus traveled with his disciples, and everywhere he went, there would be a crowd. And people knew the disciples, and they knew if the disciples were there, Jesus was there. So there was this you know, huge crowd. They couldn't go anywhere without drawing attention. But in this situation, Jesus appears to be by himself because he didn't draw a crowd. He didn't draw attention. As a matter of fact, later in the story, it says that Jesus just sort of disappeared into the crowd. Nobody knew where he went. So he's alone as he comes into Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, we may hear this picture and go, oh, how awesome that there's a little fountain that's there and there's flowing and trickling water and it's probably surrounded by lush green landscape and they probably have all these shops and these boutiques and these cute little coffee shops and restaurants and businesses and there's just all these people going around this little pretty fountain here in the middle. You know, you kind of think like a short pump or a Stony Brook mall. You go, oh, it's just so beautiful. Well, if that's what you're thinking, you're not even close. All right, you're on the opposite side of the planet of what this place was like. This was actually a very small body of water. I mean, think along the lines of kiddie swimming pools, all right? The little pools you get for your children. It's not a big body of water at all. It was fed uh, water flowing into it by an intermittent spring, meaning water flowed in occasionally, but not all the time. Uh, the minerals in the water, uh, ancient writings tell us that it had like a reddish sort of tint to it, to the water. So you get a cup or you get Get a, get a cup full into something that had a lighter color, and it looked really dirty. It looked pretty nasty, as a matter of fact. It probably had an odor to it because of these minerals that are in there. So that's kind of what's going on at the spring. And then all around the spring are, are, are these people uh, just lying around. And if you notice, you're looking through the, the ESV, if you're here and reading through that, there's not a verse 4. And people say, well, there's not a verse 4. What happened to this verse in the Bible? Well, let me tell you a little bit of what happens uh, in, in writing Scripture. Uh, in the bottom of your Bible, if you've got an ESV, and maybe an NIV as well. There's a footnote down there which has verse 4. And what happened over time is uh, generally the, the first Bible that came into mass production was the King James Bible. And as that was translated, there were copies of, of manuscripts that had been passed down and, and found during generations. And they copied into a King James Bible. Well, between the time King James is written and our modern day, we have discovered more manuscripts. Archaeologists have discovered more manuscripts and more remnants of Scripture. And when they match those up, there is a Amazing unity. It is awesome how uh, extensively scribes and, and religious leaders went to in making sure they perfectly transcribed and were accurate in writing and making copies on parchment. You know, they didn't go into the Xerox and hit the button and photocopy it, all right? That wasn't around, so people are having to write. And as you write stuff, you can, you can get things wrong, but there's amazing unity in those things. However, some of the things that we discovered were when you found these manuscripts, some of them were dated much earlier. The places they were found, and the writings and the things around that, they were dated, uh, you know, 50 to 100, sometimes multiple hundreds of years before the manuscripts of, of the King James Bible that was used. So as we've done some of the modern translations, you look through and there are, there are verses that aren't in there. Well, when you look at those things, they don't generally impact central doctrines or tenets in Scripture. They're, they're more often, they're notes and clerical sort of things, as is the case right here. Because we have this body of water, and you're reading through, you go, okay, well, there's this body of water, and you skip on to verse 5, and you see the man who was invalid, and you go, okay, well, we don't think a whole lot about it. 
Well, what happened is, look at the footnote here on verse 4 in the bottom. Around this pool of water, there came to be an understanding of why these people, of what drew them. It says, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So that's verse 4. That was the common understanding in that day and time of what took place at this water that an angel came down and stirred the water. What was happening was this spring that flowed into it, it wasn't all the time. When the spring would flow in, the water would move. And people said, wow, look at what's taking place here. Kind of like in our day, we understand how places become temples and shrines. They become holy places. And I've spoken of this before. Have you seen where people, they find the, the, a picture of the Virgin Mary or an image of Jesus in a potato chip or in a watermark or a paint spill, something like that. If you've seen those images, people come and they leave flowers and they light candles and, and it becomes sort of this shrine in these places. And then people will speak up and say, I was there and I had such a blessing in my life. And maybe there was a healing there. They say, after I left this place, this great blessing flowed into my life. And it kind of picks up just how sacred this place is. That's what was taking place at this water here. The water would flow in and you played the game of telephone. So the blessings and the healing begin to take place where there's an angel that came and stirred the water, even though there's not an angel mentioned anywhere else in the text that John speaks about. So that John 4 there kind of gives you the picture of what's taking place and why these people were there. And probably as these, uh, the, the, the we and the infirm, the invalids are there, someone probably donated money to build these big porches, these colonnades it mentioned, these five that provided shelter. They did that as an act of mercy to these who were there who were waiting for the water to stir. And I don't know that our minds can really even fathom what this place looked like. Seeing uh, the, these, these infirm, uh, the, these disabled, these poor persons who were there, the sights and the smells uh, of this area are hard for us to grasp as, as these people were lying around waiting for this water to stir so they could get into this pool. I mean, honestly, it, it would have been a pitiful sight looking at all these persons and all these people who were waiting and hoping that they could be the first one into this pool so that they could secure their miracle so that they could be healed. Uh, it was heartbreaking to see these persons and, and gut-wrenching this picture of hopelessness that was there. But into that situation walks Jesus. Into that picture of desperation and hopelessness Jesus Christ arrives on the scene. And you know what that reminds us and reminds me? Christians should be on the front lines in helping people in need. It is up to us. It is our responsibility to follow the example of Jesus and be where people are who are hurting, who are in need, who need hope, who need love and care and ministry we are to be there and i read somewhere someone once said that that there's a danger in churches that when churches realize they're not doing something well generally what they do is they they, they plan a ministry they organize a new initiative you know hey we're not doing this well so here's what we're going to start doing every tuesday show up or every thursday and we start planning maybe what we're what we're not doing well and as i looked this week and was reminded that in jesus life you could always find him ministering to and showing love and caring and presenting himself to people who were in need, the outcast, the downtrodden, 
the ostracized, the, the outcast in society. That's where Jesus was. And you know what I was reminded of? That's where we need to be. He set that example and he calls us to follow his example. So we are going to start a new initiative. Here's what it is. If you see a need, go meet that need. How easy is that? You've been trained, all right? I'm not going to sit you for four hours and go through a session. You've been trained. If you see a need, go meet that need, especially when you're meeting that need of people who don't look like you, who don't talk like you, who don't dress like you. Meet the needs of people who are looking for hope, who are desperate who are hurting, who are outcast, who are lonely. That's where Jesus was. Those are the people that he showed love and compassion and mercy to. And those are the same people that we need to be praying, Lord, help me see people with your eyes. I think that's the key thing. We don't slow down long enough to see what's taking place in other people's lives because we're focused on us. Me, 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 me. I've got things to go. I've got places to be. I've got stuff that's got to get done. I've got this. It's all about me. Let's slow down long enough and say, Lord, help me see people with your eyes. And Lord, when I see these needs, help me remember, I'm your hands. I'm your feet. You've shown me that need. You've placed me in that place so that I can meet that need. Let's be those hands and those feet of Jesus. Well, let's look and see what happens in this situation as Jesus arrives on the scene. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, I told you Jesus was alone, and this verse confirms that Jesus was alone. Because if Peter had been there, do you know what Peter would have said when Jesus asked this man who had been invalid for 38 years, do you want to be healed? Peter would have said, here's your sign. Some of you have seen that bit, you heathens. You, you know what I'm talking about with that. You know, I, th- there are things that, that you just don't ask, right? I mean, if you're not sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that a woman is expecting, you do not say, so when are you due? All right, not a good situation to be in, all right? And in all my years of ministry and visiting people in the hospitals and visiting them in their home when, when they're recovering and when they're sick, when they're ill, I've never asked someone, hey, do you want to get better? You just don't do those things. Yet here's Jesus saying to this man who's been an invalid for 38 years and knowing, John says, that he's been that way a long time, says, do you want to be healed? Well, before we, you know, we criticize and uh, think that maybe Jesus has the worst bedside manner ever, let's think about this for just a second and look at the man's response. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Verse 6. Verse 7, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, and while I am going, another steps down before me. You notice what's missing in that man's response? The word yes, that's exactly right. The man doesn't say yes. You'd think, well, that's a silly question. Jesus asked, do you want to be healed? Of course the guy's going to say, yes, I want to be healed. That's why I'm here. But the man doesn't say, yes, I want to be healed. What does he do? He gives an excuse as to why he can't be healed. So here's this man 
has no idea who Jesus is, yet when asked if he wants to be better, his, his hope, his high expectation of this stranger is that maybe this man will hang around long enough that the next time the water stirred, this guy will help get him into the pool and beat everybody else. That's his high expectation, his hope of this man asking, do you want to be healed? I mean, that's a pretty low expectation. But before we move on, let's drill down a little bit on this question because this teaches an important lesson for us. Remember this, and I think you all understand this. Jesus was always intentional. Everything he did was with purpose and for a purpose. So he wasn't just trying to strike up conversation here. Jesus was asking this question to assess this man's heart to make an assessment of this man's heart, where he is in his spiritual journey, because Jesus wanted to reveal himself to this man for salvation. Jesus wasn't most concerned with the man's physical condition. Always understand that. Jesus knows that, hey, we can have a perfect physical life free of any ailment and sickness our entire life, but if we don't place our faith in him, we're going to leave this life and we're going to spend eternity in hell separated from him. Jesus is always more concerned with our spiritual condition than our physical condition. So that's what he's referencing here, and he's trying to assess this man's heart being ready for salvation. And this question for us reveals whether or not we're ready to receive what Jesus comes to offer. Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And the man could have said, well, no, I'm, I'm making a decent living as a beggar. Or, you know, if I start walking, then I'm going to have, you know, new responsibilities and all that. You know, I'm doing pretty well right here. You know, he could have came up with an excuse, and he did, as to why he didn't want to be healed and said, no, I have no desire for that. Well, think about people in our day and age today when presented with the claims of Christ. Do you know Christ? Do you want to receive him and, and make a profession of faith? Be forgiven of your sins. Be cleansed. Would you like to become a child of God? Do you want to be healed spiritually? Meet this most important need in your life as you share the gospel with people. What do people sometimes say? I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm a good person. I haven't committed any really, you know, bad sins. Or I'm not all that into religion. And so we ask, do you want to be healed spiritually? And they basically say, no, nah, I'm good. I'm okay. They're not ready to receive what it is that Jesus offers. And here's the thing. If a person isn't willing to receive Jesus on his terms, not their terms, on his terms, Jesus won't force himself upon them. He just won't do it. But this man also reveals a second necessary component for salvation uh, when Christ presents himself to work in our lives. This man realized that he couldn't heal himself. He said, you know, I want to be healed, but I can't because I can't beat people into the water. But he knew that he couldn't get there by himself. And I, you need to understand and grasp this. This man uh, that John's writing about, he was an invalid. It means, it means he couldn't walk, but apparently uh, he had upper body mobility and strength. Okay, he talks about him having a mat, so he had a mat that he could rest on, he could lie on. But then he says that he couldn't get other people into the water, that, that people beat him there. So, I mean, this guy was able to basically, he could maybe drag himself, you know, push and pull and and roll a little bit but he said my problem is I can't get in the water before other people they all beat me there so he had some level of mobility but he realized that he couldn't heal himself and you know what we need to recognize when it comes to our spiritual condition we cannot save ourselves we can't pull ourselves into the kingdom of God and we can't push and we can't drag we can't roll our way into God's kingdom 
We're only saved through Jesus Christ. We are dependent upon him for our salvation, just as this man was dependent for someone to get him into the water and to bring the healing that he longed for, that he wanted. And the other part of that for us to realize is that even after we are saved and Christ has saved us and redeemed us for his purposes, if we're going to accomplish God's work and God's will, God's plan for our lives, we have to depend on him to bring that to pass. We are dependent upon Christ for him to accomplish his will and his work and his plans in our lives. So this man helps us see that that he couldn't heal himself. Neither can we heal or save ourselves. But the last element necessary for, for this man's healing and for our spiritual healing in Christ is faith and obedience. It takes faith in Christ, and it takes obedience to his word because Jesus says to the man after he hears his excuse, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And maybe as Jesus said that, maybe the man felt a sensation in his legs. Maybe he had feelings, and maybe he was able to wiggle his toes. He's like, wow, I haven't been able to do that for a long time. Uh, Maybe he didn't feel anything in his legs, and it was just a matter of whether or not he was going to try and flex his muscle that that had been uh, totally inactive. You know, it hadn't worked in 38 years. Maybe he thought, well... You know, I don't feel any different, but this man says, you know, try and, you know, get up, get up, take up your mat and walk. Maybe I'm going to try and move my leg and see what happens. Here's the thing. It hasn't moved in 38 years. And if I try and it doesn't move, nobody's even going to know the difference. All right. So we don't know what's going on in in the man's mind when Jesus says, get up, take up your, your, your mat and walk. But what we do know is that this man did something. He stepped out in obedience. He had, had enough faith to say, well, I'm going to try this and see what, you know, what, what do I have to lose. And maybe he tried to wiggle his toes. Maybe he rolled his foot over for the first time. Maybe he bent his knee for the first time. Whatever happened, he realized, hey, wait a minute. What's not worked for 38 years is now working. And so I'm sure he began to kind of move and said, hey, th- th- this is different. And, and there's probably going to be greater faith and excitement, anticipation with his body. And he moved and, and he stood up. And, and I can't imagine, I just can't fathom, church, that a guy in this situation is going to stand up and say, that's pretty good. All right, well, I'm going to gather my stuff up here, take off and head on out of here. No, if you haven't walked for 38 years and you suddenly miraculously are healed, What's the first thing you're going to do when you stand up? You're going to dance. You're going to hop. You're going to jump. You're going to do bell kicks. Woo! You know, look at this. I'm walking. I'm walking. I've been healed 38 years. Grasp this concept. He's running up people going, do you see what happened? Look at these. You know, aren't these awesome? Hiking his robe up. Look, look, they work. They work. I can see the muscles again. I mean, this guy's excited. He's probably running around and he's dancing and he's hopping and he's shouting. And then all of a sudden he stops to look and maybe remember to thank the man. And he goes, where'd he go? Remember I told you Jesus slipped off in the grass. He said, well, he's not here. Well, he told me to take my, I need to get myself. And so he gathers his stuff up and he heads off to go tell his family what had happened and how he had been healed. I want to ask you this morning, how is God calling you to step out in faith and trust him today? Will you believe Jesus' words? I don't know what word you're hung up on. I don't know what words you're wrestling with in your faith journey with Christ, but Christ is speaking to you in your situation and where you are, and he wants you to believe his words, not what the world's telling you, not the, the, not the ungodly counsel of, of your coworkers and your peers and, and your classmates. God wants you to say, this is your word, and I'm going to believe it regardless of what anyone else in the world will tell me. What word is Christ calling you to obey in your life? Will you trust him? 
Will you trust him with this area and this situation in your life? And will you be obedient to that still, small voice that's whispering to your heart? If you want to be healed spiritually, if you want to experience the fullness of Christ, you're going to have to step out in faith and obedience. Do you want to be healed and experience the fullness of Christ in your life? Let's flip the coin here and let's look at the individuals in this story whose expectations were too high of Christ. Not that Jesus couldn't meet their expectations. The thing is, they refused to let go of their expectations of what Jesus should and shouldn't do. And instead of seeing a miracle of faith, their cold, hard hearts determined to kill Jesus instead of follow him. I want you to grasp that this point in John's gospel is very important because this is a turning point with the religious leaders and believe it or not this miracle caused men to decide that they needed to oppose and ultimately kill Jesus instead of placing their faith and their trust in him and following after him the end of verse 9 says Verse 9 says, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. This next sentence is very important. Now that day was the Sabbath. It's a very important statement right there. Understand this. This man basically lived at the pool. He didn't make his way to and from each day. It was a lot of work, a lot of effort. He basically lived at this pool. Jesus could have come at any time and walked up and performed this miracle, and it would have not been a big deal at all the day before the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath, or any of the days in between. But Jesus chose to do this on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is a day of rest. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus come and heal this man on the Sabbath knowing the potential for conflict, for the opposition that would arise? Why would Jesus do that? Because there comes a time when you have to stand up And you have to confront attitudes and traditions and customs that are ungodly, unbiblical, and detrimental to the kingdom of Christ. There comes that time when you have to stand for God and for his word. And you must stand on these principles and counteract things that have grown in that that may have looked good, that may have started with pure intent, but they're detrimental to the kingdom of Christ and his work in your life. Now, don't get me wrong in this. I don't enjoy smacking hornets' nests and messing with sacred cows in people's lives. I mean, I I don't go looking for those things. But there are times and there are situations when those things are necessary, regardless of how unpleasant, how challenging, or how difficult they may be. And that's what Jesus did here. Jesus knew that this time was coming. He was going to face this opposition. And in God's plan, according to God's time, this is when he chose to confront the religious leaders and basically call them to a place of saying, are you going to follow me? Are you going to follow Christ? Or are you going to cling to your man-made traditions, your man-made customs, your rules, uh, and your regulations? Are you going to follow those things or are you going to follow me? And they very clearly say, we're going to follow our traditions, our customs, our rules. We are going to reject you. And that's what they do. Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
So they see this man who's been healed, probably dancing his way back to go tell his family and friends what's taking place, and, and recognize for them to see this, they were out on the streets policing. They were watching, looking for people who were breaking the Sabbath laws that they had established. And that's what you need to understand is they were breaking a rule they had established, not one that was mandated in, mandated in Scripture. The Bible tells us to, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And that means taking a break from your normal work to worship, to pray, to reflect upon God, to rest. Uh, it, it's something that God has given us as a way to, to remind us of our dependence upon him. We take that rest and, and we focus on him and we, we thank him for the things that have taken place in the past week. And, and we look forward and we commit ourselves to him in the things that come in the weeks ahead but you see the pharisees and the scribes had added to this command about the sabbath a series of 39 laws 39 series of laws that spelled out their interpretation of what was legal and illegal to do on the sabbath these are their man-made customs that went through and so you got to think about this. If their job, and they were out enforcing these things, they were working on the Sabbath. I mean, their job's enforcing the law, so they're working on the Sabbath to go out and tell people that they're not, you know, doing what they're supposed to do on the Sabbath as well. But their laws, and we just give you a couple of examples of how they heap these things on. It, they forbid looking in a mirror on the Sabbath. You know why? Because if you looked in a mirror, you may see a stray hair, and you may be tempted to pluck that hair or pluck that hair or pluck that hair you know you're looking in a mirror you're going that's nasty yeah but if you saw that stray hair and you plucked it that was work you were exerting enough force in your muscles to pluck that hair they considered that work so they forbid looking in a mirror on the sabbath so that you didn't work like pulling a weed out you couldn't go weed your garden that's work plucking a hair was considered work on the sabbath so that they forbid looking in mirrors on the sabbath they forbade people from wearing false teeth because if your false teeth fell out, what are you going to do? You want to apply the five-second rule, right? So you're going to pick them up as quickly as you can so you can pop them back in. That's work. That bending, that lifting, picking up your teeth is work. They, 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 uh, that was forbidden. You couldn't carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, but you could wear one. So if you're in a room and you had your hanky with you, and you wanted to go to the other room, you simply tied it on you, walked to the other room, and then untied it, and it was there. You didn't carry it to the other room, but you got it to the other room. There, there's a debate, historical writings, but there, there was a debate that took place about what a man should do with his wooden leg on the Sabbath. And the discussion was this. If a man's in his house with a wooden leg, and it catches, the house catches on fire, can he carry his wooden leg out of the house? Or is that considered work? And there was a debate as to whether or not he, was, he would be allowed to carry his wooden leg out of the house. I mean, you see how the, they just heaped on the, these laws and these rules and these regulations. And so picking up a mat and rolling it up and carrying your stuff was forbidden. And that's what this man was doing. And he bumps into the Sabbath police. You, know, you ever ran into to the Sabbath police or, or I call them the, the Burger King church police? You know the Burger King church, have it your way, you know, type deal? Yeah, that, that's what they're policing, you know, the have it your way type group. So they bump into these guys. And just for a second, let's go easy on the religious leaders and say, you know what? And their heart's in the right place. They're trying to do good by, by God and by men. And they, they just want to enforce the, the Sabbath law. And so they confront the man about carrying his mat. And the man says, I was an invalid for 38 years. This man healed me. Now I can walk. He told me to take my bed. And I'm going back to tell my family. It's a miracle. And they go, that's awesome, dude. Carry on. They give him high fives. They give him a hug, a pat on the back, a couple of fist bumps, and say, man, it's awesome that what God has done in your life today. Go tell everybody what God has done for you. That's awesome, right? It would be if they did that, but they didn't do that. 
when they confronted this man and he told them that the man who healed him told him to pick up his mat and to walk and they asked him in verse 12 look at this they, they hear his story and in verse 12 they asked him who is the man who said to you take up your bed and walk interpretation what who would dare violate our laws our customs our traditions who would be so bold and so, so callous and, and so naive as to challenge our wisdom, our laws, and our customs? We want to know who this man is. You know, that's what a hard heart will do. That's what putting man-made traditions over a growing intimate relationship with Jesus Christ will do. I want you to understand these men had no joy for this man's miracle. It is mind-boggling to me that they see and hear this man speak of not being able to walk for 38 years. He's miraculously healed. They totally ignore it. Don't tell us about your medical record. We don't care about your miracle. We want the name of the man who told you to pick up your mat and walk. How do you do that? How do you ignore a walking, talking, dancing, joyful miracle in front of you to focus on your, your, your laws, your tradition, and, and what you think it should be? And so they start this search. They want to know who restored this man's body on the Sabbath and broke their laws. Well, the man didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped off into the crowd. But in verse 14, Jesus comes back to the man and he says, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And Jesus' words remind us of a couple of things. First, it's not the case in every situation, but the Bible does teach that sometimes sin can cause or is punished by physical ailments or sickness or even death. And a second byproduct of that is that our sin can cause physical consequences that never go away. We can deal with physical consequences as a result of our sin that last our entire life. And I listed some scriptures that teach about this possibility, even though it's not a certainty in every situation. I don't want you, you know, equating that something bad happened, therefore it's punishment for sin. It's not that way in every situation, but it is a possibility. And apparently for this man, it's what had occurred because Jesus tells him, you know, go and, and sin no more so that you don't have something worse happen than what happened this time but secondly Jesus warning is a call for this man's spiritual healing again Jesus was more concerned about that because think about it he tells him something worse may happen well what's Jesus referring to there he's referring to the fact that this man could die apart from Christ and be separated for him from him for eternity you know so Jesus is saying don't let that happen to you place your faith in me I gave you the physical healing so that you'll know who I am so that you'll place your faith and your trust in me but the, finally, the final thing that we see here is that apparently it didn't work. This man didn't place his, his faith and his trust in Christ for salvation. As soon as the man learned that Jesus had healed him, look at what he does in verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. In verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He went straight to the religious leaders to tell them that Jesus was the one who had healed him and had broken their law. In John chapter 9, a similar situation happens, and that man who was healed did believe in Jesus for salvation, and he defended Jesus to the religious leaders. But we don't see that man doing that here in John chapter 5. And so they rejected him, and they began to, to persecute him. And why did they reject Jesus as their Messiah? because he didn't live up to their expectations. 
Isn't that amazing? Jesus wasn't good enough for them. Grasp that and remember this point in John's gospel. This is a turning point. It's no longer Jesus is doing what he wants to do. We're doing what we want to do over here. It's we can't allow this Jesus to continue this work because people are going to see, people are going to hear, they're going to go follow him, and he doesn't act like us. He doesn't behave like us. He doesn't think like us. We don't want people going to follow him. And so they felt their course of action, what they must do. They felt it was an imperative in their lives, these religious leaders, was to kill Jesus so that they could stop him, so that no one else would go and follow after him. And I want to ask you this morning, what are your expectations of God? Are they too high? Are they too low? Do you want to get well? If so, you're going to have to come to Jesus on his terms. Remember, it's on his terms. Are you willing to step out in faith and obedience and receive him, realizing you can't do it on your own? You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You can't experience the fullness of Christ apart from him accomplishing his work in his life. But to do that, are you willing to believe and to obey God and his word? To step out in faith and trust him, even if it's contrary to what everyone else in the world may say, even if people look at him. I mean, remember, this man was healed, and some of the people who should have been most excited for him were not most excited for him. They tried to steal his joy, squash the, 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 the exuberance and the, the euphoria that was in his life. That may happen as God begins his work in your life. People won't like the you that Jesus is calling you to be. But you've got to trust him. You've got to rely on his strength even in that moment. As we come to our time of invitation this morning, I want to invite you, if you would like to experience, if you've never placed your faith and your trust in Christ, if you've never come to him on his terms, then I want to invite you to do that today, to receive Christ as your Savior. Our pastors will be available and our altar is open. Or you can come this morning and just deal directly with God by falling on your knees. Or maybe just right where you are, resolve to say, I I want to be obedient. I want to stand firm for you. Regardless of what people say, Lord, I want your will to be accomplished in my life. I ask you this morning, do you want to be healed spiritually, physically? Do you want to experience the fullness of Christ in your life? Then realize you can't do that on your own. You need Christ. And realize that to experience that, you must surrender your will your rights, your plans, and receive what Christ has in store for you, knowing and and understanding that it is always better than what you expected. This man said, yeah, I I need somebody to help me in the pool. Jesus said, nah, don't worry about the pool. Stand up and walk. Here's the miracle right here. Stand up and walk. You don't need the pool. You need me. The religious leader said, we want the Messiah to do this, this, this. Jesus said, no, you don't need those things. You need me. Come follow me. Will you do that?